because of their covenant disobedience around the start of 600 BC, God gave the Jewish people over to the country of Babylon. The Babylonians came in and took them off to serve them in Babylon. And in 538 BC, the Persian king Cyrus, he conquers the Babylonians and he issues a decree saying that the Jewish people could return to their land and build the temple. So the Jews, they do return and eventually through the the ministries and, and preaching and prophesying of Zechariah and Haggai, they rebuild the temple in 516 BC. But things weren't the way that they used to be. Yes, they were no longer exiles in the technical sense, but they were no longer autonomous either. And and they were being ruled over by the Persians and eventually Greece and Rome. The Jewish people were exiles in their own land, so to speak. Many had believed that there would be a Messiah, someone God would raise up to conquer the nation oppressing them. And many people came and they claimed that they were that Messiah. There were many people that made political claims and would speak against the nation that was oppressing them. But what happened to all of these messiahs? They died. They all failed. They all died. And when someone who claims and professes to be the Messiah dies without doing what he had promised, to them it meant he wasn't the Messiah And it also meant that it's time to go look for a new one. Because the Messiah is going to conquer. And so the disciples were facing a a difficult problem. Because Jesus the one they've been following for years now also claimed to be the Messiah. And he has died just like all the other ones. So through their minds, perhaps they're thinking, does this mean that it's time to look for somebody else? Certainly doubt would be there. Our text begins uh, with John chapter 20, verse 1. And he says that it was the first day of the week. So Jesus had just been crucified on Friday. At 9 a.m. in the morning, the Romans took an already flogged Jesus. They nailed him to a tree on a hill called Golgotha, which is right outside Jerusalem. And for six excruciating agonizing hours, 
Jesus endured the physical torment that comes from Roman crucifixion. He endured evil in the form of mocking and unjust anger against him. He endured being counted as sinful and the Father's wrath against sin. And soon after, he was buried. And he spent the rest of Friday in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was there all day Saturday. And they even had the tomb sealed and guarded on Saturday. And now we're at daybreak on Sunday, the first day of the week. It sort of makes you wonder why does this narrative start at daybreak on the first day of the week? Why say the first day of the week rather than the third day after the crucifixion? I ask that you try to follow my train of thought uh, here. In Genesis 1, on the first day of creation, Moses records that there was darkness. He says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God, he creates light, and he separates it from the darkness, and he literally creates days and a daybreak. So in the original creation, there was great darkness and God created the first days in a series of days called a week. And throughout John's gospel, we've been seeing John echo the creation account in some not so subtle ways. How does the gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the word. Just like Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John says that this word created everything. Nothing was created apart from him. Many people argue that John's simply trying to highlight the eternal nature of the sun and that as far as you go back, the sun was always there. But he's not only doing that. The reason he's echoing Genesis 1 and he's talking about the Son's creative power, he's doing this in a whole new context. This word is coming, he's made flesh, and he's about to create something new. And very soon, He's going to be telling people like Nicodemus that you must become a new creation to be a part of the kingdom. He says you must be born again, Nicodemus. And just as the Spirit was the creative person in the original creation hovering over the waters, new people are being born again in the water and the Spirit. 
in the popular book series Chronicles of Narnia, there's a lion who's named Aslan, and he's supposed to represent Jesus in these books. And in one of the books, everything, the grass, the trees, were all but dead. But Aslan, he would walk around and everywhere he walked, the grass and the plants, they would just grow and they would become thick and lush simply by being around him, by being in his presence. And here's a quote from the magician's nephew. Listen to this. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew with, uh, green, with green, with grass, it spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. And similarly, Jesus came into a fallen, broken world filled with sickness and disease. But he went around healing everyone he came in contact with. Demons and demonic forces have been corrupting God's good creation since the fall. But Jesus would come and with a word, cast them out. In Revelation, he said, I make all things new. And that's exactly what he did in the Gospels. He was a walking talking wellspring of life. Like Aslan, everywhere he went and everyone he touched, he would give life to. He would restore sick, fallen humans to what they used to be. New creation flowed out of him. Perhaps this is a sign of things to come. And Jesus, the creator of all things, the one who was there in the beginning, has finally, finally come, and he is taking back and restoring his world. The Gospels, particularly John, are all about the new creation everywhere you look. And now, in our text, John hints that something big is about to take place. In the original creation account, on the first day of the week, there was darkness. In our text, it's the first day of the week, and it's dark. And the light is about to shine. Could we be on the brink of new creation breaking in to the world? John records that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now look at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so as she arrives, she sees the stone in front of the tomb that had been put there to sh seal shut the tomb. She saw that that was rolled away. And so what is Mary's reaction to seeing this tomb, this stone, rolled away? Let's look at verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Mary is distraught and maybe even has a little bit of panic and fear. And so she goes to the disciples. And I have to admit, I have to confess that there's a little bit of tension here with some of the other accounts in in the resurrection story. Matthew claims that in the morning the women went to the tomb, but when they went, he says they didn't run off to the disciples immediately, but he says that they saw an angel first. But John here doesn't describe any angels. And if Mary did see an angel, it's really strange that she doesn't mention that fact to the disciples or is comforted by what the angel said. So what's going on? Did Mary see an angel before her first report to the disciples? No, she didn't. To harmonize all the resurrection accounts, what happened was that all these women, they came to visit the tomb, but as soon as Mary saw the stone rolled away, she was immediately so upset that she left the women and had to go get the disciples. The other women then stayed at the tomb and spoke with the angel. And when Mary gets to the disciples, she's so upset that she tells them in verse 2 that someone has taken the Lord. Robbing graves of bodies was so common in ancient times that the emperor Claudius eventually ordered capital punishment on anyone who stole a body. In the resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright, Wright argues that in ancient times, No one believed in resurrection. Some believed in escaping the body and the physical world to go to another destination. But they didn't believe that people's actual bodies, their actual flesh would come alive again and once again be on the earth. But the Jewish people were different. They believed that the created world was good, that the body was good, and that God was a God who would make things right. They believed that God would restore the world. And these ideas, the good creation and a good God, led the ancient prophets in uh, Daniel in chapter 12 or Ezekiel to begin to give some very strong images of people coming back to life. And so, the Jews in Jesus' day, with the exception of the Sadducees, did believe in the bodily resurrection. But what they believed was that all of God's people would rise together, they would experience resurrection at the same time, and that this would all happen at the end of time. No one had believed that a single person would come back to life on his own in the middle of history. And so when we combine the fact that grave robbing was a very common practice with the belief that Jewish people or that people didn't rise from the dead on their own, the only conclusion Mary could come to was that someone must have stolen Jesus. And she's heartbroken about it. 
The text goes on to say that Peter and John head out to investigate. Let's look at verses 3 to 5. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So Peter and John, they raced to the tomb, and for some very strange reason, John, the author of this text, wants us to know that he can outrun Peter. But John, the point is he makes it to the tomb first, and being a cautious person, he simply peeks his head into the tomb to see what's going on. But he doesn't go inside the tomb. Verses 6 and 7 tell us what happened next. Let's look. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Peter who has this bold, throw caution to the wind sort of personality, does exactly what we'd expect him to. He just goes right inside the tomb. And when he goes inside, the text says that Peter saw the linen cloth lying there, and he saw the face cloth lying separately and folded up. Now, why is this detail about the cloth so important? It's important because it demonstrates that the body wasn't stolen. A grave robber wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap a body before stealing it. And it wouldn't have only been time-consuming. The cloth would have been protection from them having to touch the blood and the wounds with their hands. It simply wouldn't have made sense to remove the cloth. And not only that, if the robbers by some chance did remove the cloth, they wouldn't have taken the time to fold it up in place. The body of Jesus was not stolen. And we can see that that's what the disciples had thought as well. Because what was the result of seeing the empty tomb with the folded cloth. Let's look at the next verse. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. So John now, he goes into the tomb as well, and as a result of seeing the folded linen cloth and the empty tomb, he believes. Peter and John were just a couple of simple fishermen. They had a simple occupation and they lived simple lives. But then this this Jesus comes along and he calls these two unlikely men to go around with him in Galilee and throughout Israel preaching the kingdom 
of God. They loved Jesus and truly believed in him. There's a story that we often talk about in the Gospels. It's called the, the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, uh, well, sorry, there's many stories that are on a mountain, but one, uh, one uh, story of a mountain in particular, when it's just Jesus, James, and John, and Peter, Peter confesses to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Christ. For three years, they had this close fellowship and relationship with Jesus and hope for him as the Messiah. But when he died, that fellowship was over. His death would have no doubt caused them to doubt who he was and what he's promised. But when they entered that tomb and they saw the folded cloths, immediately their hearts and spirits began to perk up inside of them. They may not have understood exactly what was going on yet, but they did know that something isn't normal here. And they had hope. Verse 9 says that they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Though there were many shadows and hints of this event, and even Jesus' own teaching about it, the disciples still didn't understand what the scriptures had to say about it. But they went home in hope. The point of verses 1 to 10 is that the empty tomb gives hope to Jesus' disciples. Now, John moves from the vantage point of John and Peter and goes back to Mary Magdalene. Mary most likely went back again later to revisit the tomb after Peter and John had left. And once again, she is very upset. Verse 11 says that Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. Mary's heart is so overwhelmed that all she can do is cry. But as she's crying, verse 11 says she decides to poke her head inside the tomb. And when she looks inside, she sees something amazing. Look at verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So Mary, in all of her emotional torment, looks inside the tomb and sees angels sitting in the place where Jesus was laying. What is going on here? And they ask her a question in verse 13. They say, why are you weeping? And Mary responds 
in the same way that she responded to the disciples, that someone has stolen Jesus' body or took him away. And at some point in this conversation, Mary, with a heavy heart and wet eyes, turns around and she sees a mysterious figure standing there. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now the text is clear that Mary doesn't know who this is she's looking at, and it says he asked her a question in verse 15. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Before Mary replies, John tells us what's going on in Mary's head about who she thinks she sees. And she says that she thinks she sees the gardener. Now, what does that mean? Some scholars have pointed out that in one sense, Mary thinking of Jesus as the gardener is right. There's many we could talk about, Wellam and Gentry and and others. In the original creation, God had created the entire world and then put Adam in the garden to protect it, steward it, and bring forth fruit from it. A garden used to be a high and royal task. A gardener used to be a task for, of royalty. And that was given to Adam. But Adam fell. But now in our text, new creation has broke into the world through resurrection and Mary is looking face to face with the new Adam, the new steward of God's new creation. This new Adam is the protector, the steward, the one who, as one scholar mentioned, turns thorns and thistles into the new creation. He's the gardener of the new creation. Mary's instincts, on one level, were right. But Mary still didn't know exactly who it is who's standing in front of her And she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. This is so sad. This is so sad. Mary Magdalene, she had a reputation of being dirty an outcast, a sinner. And the gospel writers tell us that she was possessed by demons. But when Mary met Jesus, she was perhaps for the first time in a while treated with respect as someone made in the image of God. Jesus cast out her demons 
He forgave her sins and he treated her as a friend. And Mary, she she loved Jesus. She even went so far one time to take some expensive perfume and wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. But then, Mary had to be there to witness all of the horrific things that had happened to Jesus. She watched as he struggled to carry his cross the instrument of death to the top of Golgotha. She was there watching as he died an agonizing, humiliating death. And now she believed that someone had even stolen his body. This is sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. How much can one person possibly take? But in verse 16, Jesus looks at her and changes everything with one word. Mary. There's nothing like hearing a familiar voice say your name. And with a heart full of excitement, Mary cries out, Rabbi. Imagine the joy she must have felt. Our greatest joys, they often, they come through having a dark cloud removed from us. And now all of Mary's fears, doubts, and uncertainties have been taken away in an instant. They've been taken away when she realized that Jesus is standing right in front of her. And she goes and holds on to Jesus and Jesus responds to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now some people think that when Jesus says don't cling to me, uh, he's telling people that after the resurrection they can sort of no longer touch him. But, but that's not true. Very soon he's going to tell Thomas to touch his side. Jesus isn't telling her not to touch him, but Jesus knew that what was in Mary's heart and, what, and, and knew that she didn't want to allow Jesus to ever leave. And so what Jesus is saying when he says not to cling to him, what he's telling her is, Mary, things aren't going to be like they used to be. Those days of us traveling around Galilee and Judea together, they're over. But instead, he tells her to go and announce to the disciples his brothers, what she's seen, and that soon she'll be ascending, he'll be ascending to the Father. And we see in verse 18 that Mary obeys. She said to them, I have seen the Lord. So Mary, she was the first person to ever deliver the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. 
We've already spoke about Mary's reputation and, and having Mary be the eyewitness to the resurrection. It actually, it only gives credibility to the fact that it actually happened. In the first century, if you're going to make up a story about Jesus' resurrection, you aren't going to use women, and particularly those with a reputation like hers. If we were to continue on, we would see even more evidence that the resurrection brings new creation. In the next section, Jesus will breathe on the disciples and tell them to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is uh, the creative person, uh, the one who uh, does the, the creative work uh, in bringing about creation and the new creation. In the original creation, God creates the world first and then humans last. In the new creation, God renews and restores human, humans first, and then he's going to fix everything else as time goes on. Application point. We should set our hope firmly in the resurrection. We should set our hope firmly in the resurrection. If Jesus would have stayed dead, we would consider him to be just another false messiah, a man who said and did some great things, but not much more. But we have historical evidence and eyewitnesses saying that he rose from the dead. The angels testified that Jesus rose from the dead. Mary saw him, the disciples saw him, and 500 people saw the resurrected Lord. And this resurrection is what separates Christianity from all the other religions. No other religion ever in existence has had something so miraculous, but at the same time, something able to be investigated. There are so many aspects and angles in the resurrection that we could look at, but by raising Jesus from the dead, God is confirming that Jesus is who he says he is. It proves that everything he said is true. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Listen to the way that Timothy Keller talks about this. If Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And because Jesus claimed that we will rise from the dead, that means that that's also true. Many people, many Christians, see the gospel and the goal of this life is to die, to sort of escape the evil material world, and to go dwell for eternity in heaven. As one scholar said, that's sort of closer to Plato and Gnosticism than Scripture. Will you go to heaven when you die before Christ returns? Yes. Yes, you will. 
But heavens is what, heaven is what scholars and theologians have called for centuries an intermediate state. It's a place we go to while God sorts out everything else in the meantime. But while we're there, things aren't completely right because we're without our bodies. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5. His point is, is that if he should, uh, should die before Jesus returns, he's not looking forward to being naked, that is going to heaven without a body, but as a spirit. But he does say that it's better, given the present state of the world, to leave the body because he'll be with Jesus. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If we die before Christ returns and go to the intermediate state, that is not resurrection. Resurrection isn't being raised up spiritually. Resurrection is a physical resurrection, a a resurrection of the body. The physical, tangible world is good. The body is good. And at the end of time, God will unite heaven and earth together God's space in heaven will become one with man's space on earth and we will be raised to live in that physical world. And because Jesus was bodily, physically raised from the dead, we will be raised as well. And we should set our hope firmly on the coming resurrection of our bodies and we have that hope because Jesus has been raised first and whatever has happened to Jesus will also happen to us. If you're here, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you're watching online, or maybe you're on the fence about Jesus, I challenge you, do your own research. Test what we've uh, discussed here today. The evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead is overwhelming. After studying all the facts and all the evidence, the most logical conclusion to come to is that he came back to life. And that means everything to you. For you. Jesus claimed to be Lord of the world and God in the flesh. And he also claimed that you and I are sinners and that we will perish. And if he was raised from the dead, then that means that everything he said is true. And that means his words have to be the most important words that you will ever hear or read. He is everything. And if he said that you're a sinner and he claims that you're going to perish, then that is a true statement. And you should be very, very concerned. Jesus made some other claims as well, though. 
Before he died, he said that his suffering death on the cross would atone, make things right. He said it was a ransom. All of the mocking, the suffering, the enduring, the cat of nine tails, the nails, the tree, inwardly suffering the Father's displeasure and enduring his wrath. All of that was to pay the penalty for your sins and for his glory. Jesus said that you must repent, turn away from your sins, and turn towards him in faith. He will forgive you. He will save you. And when you die, you will be with the one who gave up his own life for you. And when he finally returns, when he breaks forth from that sky, you and your body will be raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another Easter. We pray, Father, as we are at our homes, probably most of us are with our just immediate family, not the the typical Easter that we normally, not the same way we normally celebrate it. We pray that you would put resurrection hope in our hearts. We pray that you would help us reflect and to think on Jesus' resurrection and what it means that it shows who he is. That, you're, that we can become new creations through it and that we will rise from the dead as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.